Today's scripture comes from Exodus 21 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Young. It's so good to be here with you all at Revive and uh, just up the road. And yet, yeah, this is the first time I get to preach here. And, you know, Susong's not here, but I think he and I met. It's got to be, gosh, 20, over 20 years ago at a pastor's conference. And then we re- reconnected um, here in the Bay Area in ministry. So uh, I feel like I know many of the staff here, so it feels very homey to be here, and I'm delighted to be here with you this, uh, this afternoon. But um, here's what we're going to look at today. Uh, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. And I told Susang when he asked me about preaching, I said, look, um, I'm not going to write a new sermon for your church, and we're going through the Ten Commandments right now, and we're going to land wherever we land, and I'm going to preach that. But you know what happened this morning? I had to preach the Eighth Commandment, and it ended up being about like finances, about stealing and money, and I said, that's probably not the sermon I want to preach at Revive as the guest preacher. So I'm going to go back and look at this passage that's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. So would you join with me in prayer uh, and ask God's blessing on our time? Our Father and our God, we thank you that we get to encounter you through your word uh, today, and we ask that you would send your spirit here to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would be receptive to what you would have us to learn. But Lord, most of all, help us to draw near to you as you draw near to us in your word. And may we encounter Christ. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You know, I came across the story of a family uh, who was doing devotional time with their children. And they opened the Bible and they got to the section that was about the laws of Moses and the giving of the law. So before reading the passage, the mom asked all the children. So now, children, how many commandments did God give to Moses? And the five-year-old shouted out, too many. (laughs) There's too many. There's too many. And maybe we share those sentiments about God's law. Um, Just too many rules, too many laws. And let me ask you something. What do you think about when you think of the Ten Commandments? What are the thoughts that come to your mind? You know, maybe some of you don't really think about them at all. They're kind of a nice ideal, an idea. But you believe that being authentic to who you are means you do you. You do what's right for you and what feels right to you. Others of you are thinking, well, no one can really keep all of the commandments and they feel really burdensome, right? I avoid it because it is impossible to live up to, but I do think it's good for society to uphold these things generally. And some of you are saying, well, these commands feel like the things I have to do. I mean, there's a good part of being Christian, which means you're forgiven. And then there's the not-so-fun part, which is obeying. 
And for others of you, you feel like, you know, I really don't want to disappoint God. I don't want him to be disappointed with me. So obeying is what I do to get God to approve of me. Now, we all have a complicated relationship with the Ten Commandments. But here's why it's so important for us to hear God tell us about his law, okay? He doesn't give us this law to flex his power over us or to just restrict our freedom, to add more burden on our lives because he knows how much burden we already carry. But he actually tells us, he gives us the law in order to live life to the fullest. He gives us his law in order to actually allow us to live life to the fullest. You know, and after the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is what God says. Oh, that they had such a heart as this, as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. I mean, this is a recurring phrase in the book of Deuteronomy, that it might go well with you. And maybe that's not the first thing we think about when we think about God's word or his law, but his desire is that it would go well with you. And you got to remember his laws are given to ex-slaves who were in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. And he is telling them, look, I rescued you. I'm not just one of the many gods of Egypt, you know, ones who set the world in motion, but is detached and impersonal. But I am the Lord, your God. That's how it begins, right? I am the Lord, your God in verse 2. God who is for you, a God who loves you. He's your savior, not a taskmaster. And your motivation for obeying is trust and gratitude that springs from what he has done for you. But you even look at the commands and you have to ask yourself, do we even understand that? Do we begin there? Because if you don't, the commandments easily and quickly become this weight around our necks where God seems to be twisting our arms to submit to him through manipulation and maybe even some divine threats. So for many of us who approach Christianity, we always want to begin with the laws. You know, some of you may be checking out Christianity and you're thinking, you know, before we get to anything about Jesus, let's talk about all this stuff, the problems I have with God, telling me here's the people who I can sleep with, who I can marry, I have a problem with God telling me how to live my life, what to do, how to relate to my parents. All that just doesn't sit well with me. But may I suggest if that's kind of where you are, that's not how you figure out if Christianity is true at all. I mean, the first step you have to ask yourself is this. Has God really done something in the scriptures as he claims? Okay? And if he has done that, then you have an entirely different lens through which we look at his commands. We're no longer driven by suspicion. But you see these laws which help us experience fullness of life as he intended. Even when his commands go against our intuitions, even when they're uncomfortable, maybe a little bit scary because God requires of us sometimes to go against what feels like is what I want and what I need at that moment. But we say, God, we're going to trust you because you are our Savior. 
You're not our boss. You're our Savior. You're our Lord, okay? So we begin there, and we begin to think about the law in this way. And this first commandment, I want us to look at this idea that no other gods before us. Because he is saying he has designed us to have him at the center of our lives. And this is verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. And does this, when you hear this, I don't think you're going to think this is the design of humanity that God has intended. Because that is also the way we have to think about it. Not only has God redeemed us, but he has created us for a very particular purpose. He has created us in order to free us rather than oppose us because he knows we have been made for him. So the first commandment gets at the root of the sin that we all share and the problems in our lives. And this is what is essentially wrong with every single one of us. Because if God created us, he has designed us for a very specific reason and purpose. We're not made arbitrarily, but in a very specific way. We were made to work right when we are in a relationship with him and live for him. You know, and maybe that sounds very strange to us in this world where the enlightenment and modernity has taught us otherwise. We're being told all the time what? If you're going to find meaning in life, if you're going to find joy and happiness, we have to be allowed to do whatever we want. Because true freedom is about having absolutely no restrictions whatsoever on our lives. And you only find joy and happiness whenever you get to do whatever your heart desires. You get to define yourself. You do you. And God is saying, no, no, no. We start at a different place. Because true freedom, joy, and happiness only comes when you find yourself in relationship to him, worshiping him, having him not only as your creator and redeemer. Because when you don't have that, you end up following all the other gods that your desires allow you to chase after, thinking you're going to find meaning here. And the instruction manual for how we were made and built and functioned God is saying is made, we are made to be in relationship with him. There is only room for one. He's saying, no other gods. There is only room for one God in your life because this is the way he has created us. And when we go against this, we get frustrated, unsatisfied. And before we get to don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't murder, all of this stuff, God says, we're going to begin with no other gods before me. Um, a friend of mine in college, and this is a true story, told me not long after her parents moved to this country, they bought their first used car to get around. They were so excited. They never had a car before because they moved from a country where cars were incredibly expensive. And they drove it around. They thought it was so cool. And after a couple of years and untold number of miles, the car just stopped working one day. And they didn't know why. They got the car towed to a repair shop, and the mechanic asked them, um, so when was the last time you changed the oil? 
seriously, this is a true story. And they said, what's that? They didn't know the car was designed to be serviced. You see what I'm saying? The engine sees that the car died. That was the end of that. But you know why? The whole purpose of having this car, no one told them one of the things it was designed to do was to be maintained. In the same way, we're not, when we're not functioning right, oftentimes it's because we are going against the design of who we are. Because we are designed to be in a relationship and worship the one true and living God. Every other God we serve is a false God, and God is saying when you start worshiping them, you are eventually going to be disappointed. And this is the essence of what the Bible calls sin, taking something or someone, whether it be your money, our looks, our career, our children, our reputation, and putting it at the center of our lives where only God belongs. And when that happens, you experience pain and brokenness because we are not designed to run on any of those things. Now, you might be saying, all right, Iron, what are you talking about? Other gods, you know, I come to church, I come to revive, I worship God. And some of you might be saying, well, I'm an atheist, or I'm just trying to figure out Christianity, and I'm not sure what I believe yet. And I'm not sure I believe in God. But you know what? I'm going to make the claim that you actually do. We all do. You know, the famous writer, uh, David Foster Wallace, gave a, a commencement address in 2005. You can find it on YouTube at Kenyon College. It's full of insights about ourselves and our lives. And this is what he writes, or what he said. And he's, he wasn't a Christian. And he writes this to college students as they're graduating. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will never, ever, you will never need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect? We're in Silicon Valley. People think we're all smart, right? Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He isn't saying anything new. He's just identifying something he's observed in our world. This is something the Bible has taught for thousands of years. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Martin Luther, the great hero of the Reformation, said, what is God? And this is in his catechism. A God is that to which we trust and believe with our whole heart. And that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. See, we go against and disobey the first commandment when something or someone else becomes more important to us than God. And when we do that, we eventually experience alienation and disappointment. 
And so the question is, who are your gods? Who or what do you worship? And the way you know is to figure out where you have put all your hopes and your dreams. Because those are your gods. And the true God says, you shall have no other gods before me. See? And no other gods means there's only room for one. And this is the second thing we have to remember. This means that this relationship has to be exclusive to him. Having him at the center of our lives means loyalty to him must be exclusive. God is saying, I've given you life and rescued you from slavery to the people of Egypt. Now he's telling them, we are going to have an exclusive relationship. I have made you mine. Now I want you to make me yours. This is the DTR God is having with each and every one of us. The define the relationship, and he's saying there's only room for one, okay? Uh, because there's something beautiful about an exclusive relationship. There's something good about it. God is saying, be faithful to me, trust me, give yourself to me exclusively. And he is saying, faithfulness to him will allow you to thrive, and it will please him. And you know what that means? That means saying yes to God means we have to say no to everything else that is not him. We have to say no. You know, I, I think this is one of the hard things. Everybody wants God, and they want everything else. You want God and the five other gods you worship. And I want us to think about that this week because he's saying, no, 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 there's only room for one in this room, okay? In here, and he's saying, it's me. And the question I have for all of us is, what do we need to say no to? And this might be even scary or even painful or threatening. You know, but think about a wedding. You know, one of the great privileges as a pastor is you get to do tons of weddings. And you know what makes wedding vows so special and beautiful? Yes, it's partly the declaration of that love that two people have for each other at that moment. But it's also that promise that I will be faithful to you to belong exclusively to you. There is only room for one person in my life, and it is you. There are things we're going to share no one else gets to share, and that's really special and beautiful, you know? And we all know even if you're not married, you're dating, if this gets violated, man, it's painful. There's only room for one. My friends, and that means there are things that every single one of us in this room have to say no to. Okay? And that's part of growing in faith. You know that Deuteronomy 6 passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you know why God is saying these things? He's saying this is how you're going to flourish. My goodness. He's saying you do this. This is leading to life. I'm not trying to restrict you. I'm trying to tell you this is where you will find water that will refresh you. You know, uh, many years ago, Jonathan Edwards, the uh, great 
uh, theologian from the 1700s said, almost anybody can say God can be useful in one's life. You can teach kids about morality, bring order to our world, but he made the case that a Christian is someone who sees God and wants a relationship with him because they begin to re recognize God wants a relationship with us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, God doesn't become just useful. Man, he becomes beautiful to a Christian, and he captivates us. And you cannot have that kind of relationship when you have many other things you are drawn to. If you ignore him, you cannot do this. All you end up with a God is a God who is useful to you, but not one in which you have a relationship where you obey him, you walk with him, you allow him to speak into your lives. You know, when you're ever uh, in a relationship with someone you deeply care about, whether it's a friend, your spouse, a family member, you know what? When they want something, that all of a sudden becomes important to you. And you're willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I wanted to go have dinner at that Mediterranean place. But you know, you're saying, I want Korean tonight. Well, because this matters to you, I'm happy to go this way. You know, we do this all the time. And God is saying, look, we have to recognize there are things we need to say no to. This is part of the first commandment. Room for only one. Exclusive relationship. Say no to all the things that are in your ears saying, hey, trust me. And God is saying, no, no, no. I have something better for you, and which is me. Now, if the first commandment is being warned against worshiping any other god, the second commandment we have in here, we are prohibited from lots of things, but from worshiping falsely even the true God. This is the second thing I want to leave you with. Because it's not only condemning idolatry, and I know all of you are thinking, well, I'm not really bowing down to anything or building any little statues, okay? But here's the thing I want us to think about in the second commandment. We like to think of God in certain ways. And God is saying, don't do that. This is what at the essence of the second commandment is. Because if you go back to Exodus chapter 32, if you know this story, the people of God are now in the desert and Moses has gone up with Aaron and Joshua up to the mountain to be with God. Oh, I'm sorry, Joshua and Moses have gone up and Aaron is with the people and they are hanging out and they're waiting for Moses to come back. And the people get restless and they begin to get nervous and they ask Aaron, hey, you know, come up with something better because we don't know what's happening. Maybe God's abandoned us. And they gather all of these jewelry that they had. They melt it down. They cast it into the shape of a calf. And it pops out and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They bow down to it. And this is what we remember from this story. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The Israelites did not build an idol intending to worship a different god. They're not intending to worship Baal. They're not intending to worship an Egyptian god like Osiris or Horus or something like that. They are doing this to worship God who brought them out of Egypt. Okay? 
This is a festival to the Lord, Aaron says in Exodus 32. And the word Lord is Yahweh. The golden calf was meant to be a representation of God himself. And what they're doing is using Egyptian models of worship, but now directed at the true God. They're worshiping God in a way that God himself finds offensive. Now, why do I bring this out? Because not only are we supposed to worship God exclusively, we are supposed to worship him in the way he would like us to know him. Have you ever been mischaracterized by someone where they've reduced you down to one thing they know about you? Isn't that kind of annoying? Because you're like, I'm much more complex than that. Oh, you're a really good student. Well, I'm also athletic and I'm funny and I'm sensitive. But like, if people keep telling you you're just academic or you're just a good athlete or you're really funny, you realize there's something much more about you. And here in this commandment, what God is saying is, I don't want you to treat me and minimize me and narrow me down to the one thing you want me to be. But rather, worship me as I am, as I've declared to you. God himself has actually shown his people what he's like. What was the image he gave them? It was a consuming fire. And why a fire? Because it tells us something, that he is holy, you know? Uh, this is why Isaiah, when he's, his eyes are open to God, he sees this vision of God in the beginning of Isaiah, and he sees the angels calling to one another, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of God, and he needs a God who is merciful to cleanse him. But you know what the attraction of idolatry is? It's to make God less than he actually is. To make him more manageable, relatable, minimizing all the things we are uncomfortable with, exaggerating a characteristic about him and diminishing the other attributes about him. To distort who he is. And in this case, you know, find a path toward blessing and promise prosperity, and to deny what is most important about him. You know, in our own day, I think we do this a lot. We're not particularly given to making plastic images of God. We're not 3D printing him, you know. Uh, but we set up idols in our hearts. That's what we're told in the scriptures. We can do this with mental concepts. We make God less than he is and compromise who has re he has revealed himself to be. And we like to say things like this. I like to think of God as, and you fill in the blank. He's loving. God is love. I know God is love, meaning he lets me do whatever I want, you know? Um, Christian Smith is a well-known sociologist who now teaches at Notre Dame University. He's done a lot of research over the years on different topics, but especially religious beliefs of young adults and teens in America. And in 2005, he published the book called Soul Searching, The Religious Lives of American Teenagers. And it summarizes like some 3,000 interviews that he conducted. And he came up with a phrase describing the faith of the average teen in America who goes to church. 
And he said the three words that describe this is moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic. You know what moralistic means? God wants people to be good and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Good people go to heaven. It's all about moralism. They think Christianity is just about being good people. And he said the other thing that he notices in these interviews, God is meant to be therapeutic. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God doesn't need to be involved in my life unless we need him to resolve a problem. So God is this guy who comes in and fixes things so we feel good. Think therapeutic. And the last thing is, Deistic, meaning there's a God who created the world but is far away. He's not intimate. He's not personal. Is this the God we worship? You know, a God who is moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic, it kind of sounds like a Christian God, but you know what that is? A distorted version of who he is. And he's not saying anything new, but oftentimes the God we worship may fall in those lanes versus the God in the scriptures. It's not something that he kind of observed all of a sudden, but it's actually been around for a long time. Uh, a theologian back in the early, uh, I should say the late 1930s, said this about God in the kingdom of God in America. And again, another observation. He says, there's a doctrine of a God without wrath and brought, uh, which brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without the cross. He's saying, you, we have now in our country a religion that doesn't require you to believe that you're in need of Christ. That doesn't require you to believe you need Jesus. And you know what this is? It's a false God. It's a God we created in order to make it easy for us to deal with. Friends, these are the things have faced us. And God is saying, look, I don't want that for you. I want you to know me as I am. I want you to experience me and the fullness of what I want to offer to you, which is new life. And yet, we realize this is hard to do. The people of Israel walked through the wilderness for 40 years having no other gods before us, worshiping God as he calls us to, I think God kind of knew we were going to fail all along the way. We're not going to be able to handle this. We're not going to do this well. You know, at, in Exodus 24, in verses 3 to 7, after all the law was laid out, all the people, you know what they say, God, we're going to obey. We will keep your laws. And they knew they're going to fail. But you know what Moses does? He takes the blood from the animals that were sacrificed at that time to the Lord, and he takes it and he sprinkles it on the people. You know what that's all about? What is that? You know, kind of a ratification of a contract that people are entering with God. Today, when we sign a contract, we actually literally sign a contract, a covenant. In the ancient Near East, you didn't do that. You actually acted out what would happen if you broke the contract. So you would take an animal, you cut it in half, and there's all this blood, kind of nasty. But you place it on either side, and you walk through the pieces. And by doing that, you're saying, you know what? I will keep my end of the bargain. 
And if I don't, may I become like these pieces. That's a serious contract. You know, it's like uh, you're saying, I'm, I'm betting my life I will do this. I promise I will do this. And here, Moses is sprinkling this blood on the people to ratify this covenant. Your blood will be shed if you don't keep these laws. So what do we do? We're in trouble. Because we can't keep the law. But many centuries later, in a room with 12 Jewish disciples who were saturated with the story of the Exodus, Jesus picks up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I'm going to keep the covenant for you. This is what we're going to celebrate today. We're going to look at what Jesus did and said, you know, we couldn't keep the law, but here's one who did. And he's saying, because of this, God is saying, you are mine. You are mine. I wanted you so badly. Not only did I rescue, I gave you laws that's going to allow you to flourish. But God is saying, I knew, and I know you can't keep this law fully. You're going to have other gods before you. You won't worship me exclusively. But God is saying, I still love you so deeply. I'm sending my one and only son in order to have an exclusive relationship with you. And he's saying, now, will you give yourselves exclusively to him? See, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. This is the Christian God. Because this is the God of Mount Sinai and the cross. You know, uh, there's a story that's been told from Civil War days uh, before America's slaves were freed about a northerner who goes down to a slave auction and purchases a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man told the girl, hey, uh, you're free. And with amazement, she responded, you mean, wait, I'm free to do whatever I want to do? He's like, yes. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And be whatever I want to be? Yep. And even go where I want to go? Yes. And he said, you are free to go wherever you'd like. And the woman looked at him and replied, I will go with you. You know, because when you experience someone who's giving up great things for you, you begin to realize you can trust them. And God is saying, you know why you can trust me with these commandments and my law? is because I am giving up that which is most precious to have you in my life. There's only room for one. It's exclusive. Say no to everything that's not him. Worship him as he tells us he is, rather than coming up with some version of God we want to worship that's easy for us to get a handle on. And lastly, realize Jesus has done what we never could. 
which is keep the law on our behalf so that in freedom, without feeling like unless we do this right, God's not going to love us, to know we have the freedom to go to him and to walk with joy, believing that this is the path. You know, as we come to this table today, maybe we think the table is all about, well, I guess I can come if I did well enough this week, kept all God's law, and this is kind of a reward by which I receive because I did really, really well. But you know what this table is? It's a table for sinners. It's a table for people who are saying, God, I failed you, and I failed you again. And what I need to do is lay aside all my self-salvation strategies, and I need to look at Jesus, who has kept the law for me, who has said, come and feast at this table, because I have done something you could never do. My body has been broken for you. My blood has been shed. And he says, come, eat, and be renewed in this, so that you can walk in my ways and experience fullness of life. That's what we're invited into today. Undoubtedly, there might be some of you here who aren't really sure what you believe. And rather than partake in the elements, I'm going to invite you to sit where you are and do business with God. Ask him to show you himself. But for those of you who are in Christ, who've been baptized into the life of the church, who are saying, Lord, I need to give up all of my self-salvation strategies and come and encounter you, and that's what I want. Come, because he wants to nourish you. He wants to nourish you. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night on which he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took bread, he gave it to his disciples, and said, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same manner, he also took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins for many, drink from it, all of you. And we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, whenever we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a God who loves his people so much. You give us your laws, not to burden us, because you want us to experience the fullness of life that you intend. You want to bless us. And Lord, help us to be people who would say no to everything else and say yes to you. Help us to see you as you are, as a God who is holy, a God who is love, a God who took punishment upon himself so that you can claim us. And this afternoon, as we come to eat and drink, fill us, we ask, by your grace, and we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.